0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Point Taken, our newly launched podcast series by the Finnish Institute in Budapest, Finagora. My name is Rebecca Vilhonen, and this is our third podcast episode. The point of this podcast is to discuss various subjects and topics related to Finland and Hungary with interesting people, And today's interesting person that I will be talking to is Finnish documentary filmmaker John Webster. Hello, John. Hi and welcome. Hi, Rebecca. How are you?
1: That's like, yeah, it's a tough order. Interesting person. All right, I will will try.
0: (laughs) No pressure whatsoever. (laughs) I believe that you are very interesting. Now, you're a um, Finnish filmmaker, but you do have English parents, just to point this out for people who are curious about your name. Uh, how did you find yourself as a filmmaker, and what is it specifically with documentaries that interest you?
1: Well, I was born. I was born in Finland. My parents, as you said, my parents were both English. I was born in Finland, so I've lived in Finland all my life. I've often thought about this, like identity. Even though like English is my mother tongue, I think over the years now, like it's I I consider myself Finnish. So, yeah, I started my life in, in mm-hmm. Finland and after school then, um, after high school and graduating, I was going to be an in- engineer for the longest time.
0: Oh, um, what kind of engineer was the?
1: Goal? I was going to be a shipbuilding en- engineer, like oh. ships. We have always been like extremely... Extremely uh, important for me, but then at some point, I suppose, sort of in my teenage, I was more drawn to art. I've always photographed since I was twelve. I started photographs with camera. It was very important, and there, I think, I found I was passionate about photography. But I was, I missed that element of the moving image, and I missed that sound, of course. So I applied for the film school in Finland, which is now the Aalto University. And uh, I was 21 when I got in. And I still remember, and you know, I was 21 and I was the youngest and everybody else was like so much older. I mean, they were 25 and I felt like, oh, Eight they six. have so much. Yes, they have so much experience <laughs> of life. And what do I have? So it was kind of... It was an interesting, it, now looking back on it, of course, I, I, I laugh, you know. So, so that's uh, how and, and why I got into documentary. Um, and I've actually, I've always done, I've always made documentary, not fiction. I mean, I've been making films for now 30 years. And I'd say what fascinates me about documentary still is that if in, in feature, in fiction film, you, you want your film to have truth and beauty and, and, and say something about life in the world. And in feature films, you have to add that. You have to write it in, you have to, the actors have to do it, you have to shoot it. But in documentary, what is beautiful or true or poignant or says something of the world, you have to find it. You have to find it from reality. And and be there at that moment when it happens, and I think that for me is is the biggest difference between feature and documentary, and what keeps me still extremely fascinated and passionate about like finding those moments.
0: Uh, you have such like your films. When I looked at them, there's so many so many different subjects that you uh, have made films about. Like there was a movie about young mothers. And then you made a film, a documentary about following police uh, men in, and women in, in Salo, which is a small town in Finland. Then there's also uh, like, there's just so many different subjects that you touch. You had your documentary where your your family also tried to, or you succeeded in living without oil for, for was it a full year? So it's like uh, yeah, so, yeah, that's you know, right. so many yeah. different ones. So I'm just wondering, where do you find the sort of inspiration? Like this is the one subjects that, oh, this is where I find this sort of something that interests me and something I want to show on film. Like, how do these things fall into your lap?
1: Well, sometimes I jokingly say, you know, that that filmmaking, and I think in a way, I suppose art in general, is a rather expensive form of trauma therapy, <laughs> in the sense that I think everybody who you know, isn't storytelling or filmmaking or, you know, wants to express something or has this need to express, it often comes from some, you know, trauma, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be trauma. I mean, you can also have a, there is something that you cannot put into words and with each you know, work of art, I'm just generally speaking now. I mean, like you're trying to express it through your art form, whether it be writing or, or film or photography or, or or painting. You're trying to express something that you cannot express in another way. I think that every, every attempt, every piece that you make is an attempt to express that. And hopefully, really, you never get to... Well, I, personally, I'm afraid of reaching that point when I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, this is it. This is what I've been trying to say like for 30 years because then that's it. Then it's like, you said it. You mentioned there's this, yes, there's a wide like topic or difference of subject. um, But I think certainly in the films where I have uh, central characters, the things that the common denominator is there, often it's like the main character finds themselves in like an unknown situation, in like a in an unfamiliar situation to them, in a, in a world that they don't know, and somehow has to cope with that. And I think it, it that you know comes maybe you know it's it's partly it's my you know British background, but living in Finland, you know the difference between there's not a very big difference, but there's mm-hmm. still a difference in culture. So there's that then there's also like if i think of of the central defining one of the central defining moments of my life was like the death of my father when i was 12 and he he had a stroke uh, a cerebral hemorrhage and i you know i was there when it happened and then he died uh, a couple of days later and for like a 12 year old it was like a really traumatic loss and and it was in that moment you know the world that i knew had cease to exist and, and and like a whole different reality and like faced with the finality of death was was a very transforming experience to me so i think you know there's that i think part of that is you know i i relate to characters who f- suddenly find themselves in in a world that they don't know and then have to find themselves and have to find a way forward so i think those are things that Unite.
0: That's very yeah. That's a very traumatic experience, of course, for someone that young to kind of yet yeah, and witness something that, yeah, some something that like a stroke and seeing that happen to your father. It's very. I can imagine like a huge shock from one day being a carefree child to the second, yeah, uh, really learning yeah. a lot of hard life lessons. Uh, one of your like your newest one of your newest films. Is called Eye to Eye, which is uh, as you describe people in this situation that uh, truly I think probably they didn't imagine themselves ever being in, because it's about uh, something called restorative dialogue therapy, which is when uh, the loved ones of homicide victims meet the person who committed the crime. And yeah, and this uh, dialogue just happens if the person who committed the crime is actually remorseful of the crime they committed and yeah this film is very it's it's something very shocking but also very like I it's such a a situation that I can imagine like it's it's so unique like most of us will never be in that and it's just very interesting situation to say the least Um, how did you like hear about this and how was the filmmaking process of this movie where you have to be so very how did you even approach this, and as a documentary maker, and yeah, just please tell us more about this.
1: Sure. Um, so it started, I think it's two thousand fifteen. I was involved in a like it was a, like a documentary theatre production with National uh, Theatre and Kiasma Theatre in Helsinki, and it was a, a documentary theatre took place in a prison with people with men actually sitting on on life sentences, and like there, like it was more about you know the problematics of, of what happens when being released etc and now there are then like with with uh, the the rest of the theater group i was like i you know i thought well you know the victims or the victims family i think we should we should have this as part of it and and so i did some research and i found this restorative dialogue therapy that had just been brought to finland and the idea behind it is it's as you say. It's under certain conditions, and 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 the perpetrator, the person who committed the the violent crime, has to be remorseful. And if it can be beneficial for the family members to meet, then this is this meeting is arranged with facilitators, psychologists. They do a lot of background. They do a lot of background um, interviews with both parties. Make sure that that it is beneficial. What is beneficial is. Again, I mean, what, how I find this and where, why this was, I felt, could resonate with, you know, me. If I step back a little bit, it's, it, it obviously comes from, you know, again, from my own experience of loss. And for me, okay, it was the death of my father wasn't violent, but it was still traumatic. And I think we all, everybody has experienced loss, in some form during their life it could be a loss of a friendship it can be a loss of a relationship uh, it can be a loss of a loved one a job anything and and when we lose something the way that we can process it and go forward in life is by grieving sorrow sorrow is the process in which we heal is a, like it's a big word but at least we find a way forward And for the victims' families of murder, the problem for them is is that they hardly ever get to do that grieving. So say a loved one dies from natural causes or an accident, but, but from not violent causes. Usually the family can start grieving sorrow after the funeral, because there's the time and the peace to do that. But with The family members of violent crime. There's the police investigation. Then there's the first stage of the court cases. Then there's like there's a break in between. There's a second. So it's it's four or five years during which the details of the murder's gone over and over and over again. There's no peace for the family members to do that that grieving, and so many people learn to live without doing that grieving, and the long run. Sorrow and grieving is a good thing. And the problems come when you can't do it. So that's why, under certain circumstances, it's good for them to meet. There can be there can be questions that the that haven't left the family members alone. Often they want to know, of course, they want to know why. Sometimes they want to know more of the details. Absolutely, they want to know that the the murderer is remorseful does want to say sorry and means it. And that's why the meeting is actually face-to-face because the family members feel it's important to look into their eyes. That's why the film is also called Eye to Eye because from their eye, they, eyes they can see if they really mean it. So it's this, these meetings are very intense. I've been to many, many, many others, oh, two of them in the film, three, sorry, in the film. But I've been to many afterwards, and it's always been really amazing. In that, the sense of release afterwards for both parties. Sometimes I've even to one where they, you know, they hugged at the end, and I had another where the woman, the the family member, she had 154 questions, <laughs> and and but actually at the during the meeting she only asked four, and that's all she needed was the four. And the difference. So it's it's this meeting is a it's an opening of a lock. You know, it's not a solution, but it's an opening of a lock that stops people from grieving, and then after that, the process starts, and then that's another part. So we we were just focusing on on this meeting and that unopening of the lock. So again, when choosing a subject, I always think like. What have I, as a filmmaker, as a person, what can I bring to it? Because I strongly believe that uh, in documentary, you get as much from your main characters as you are prepared to give yourself. It's always, it's a long process making a one-hour film or a feature film. It's like two, three years each. So it's like a, you know, it's a way, it's not only making a film, it's a way to spend your life. And so, of course, from a filmmaker's point of view, you really have to care about it. Maybe that's why it's always going back, it's treating your trauma. Mm-hmm. But it, it has to speak to you, but also uh, you, you have to feel that you can give something to it because also the, the main characters, you're spending a lot of time with them, you're building a relationship of, of trust. So there, you know, my own experiences with loss, although or my ex- experience with traumatic loss, there were many things that, where we did have in common. Surprise, so which you know there's knowing that the world that you know can come to an end with one phone call
0: yeah and,
1: and knowing that that's possible and, and what that does then to one's outlook on life but so you know i spent a lot of time uh i spent a lot of time with both the the family members but also with the murderers and just um yeah
0: sorry to interrupt but like like, I've never met a murderer, I think most people haven't, or maybe we have, and we haven't known, who knows? We, we, <laughs> that's, that's a horrible isn't, isn't it horrible? Yeah, yeah when you think yeah. about it, like, yeah, just to put that little thought in your <laughs> mind, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, but just, uh, yeah, I don't want to be like, Oh, what was it like? But, uh, but yeah, like, what was it like to meet someone you know, has committed such a like, taken someone's life? Like, what was, what was that like?
1: when we did the theater when we did the theater project there were like 10 15 of the you know of the, the prisoners took part in and and i there i always took the the point of view that i didn't want to know what they'd done i didn't want to know unless they wanted to tell me uh, because it made it very difficult to meet them as a like a, a, another human being also with the perpetrators uh, of these cases I mean, it helped because I knew that they really were sorry. At least they said they were sorry. And so I did, when I first met them, I hadn't found out. I knew roughly what they've done, but I didn't know the details of it. And so when I first met them, like I started at once with with the interview and filmed that, and, and it's also in, that's in the film. And I wanted to, rather than read what they'd done, I wanted to hear them say it because if I read it beforehand, I think that would color my perception of them. I mean, very often these 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 things happen, like you know, and then under the influence of drugs or alcohol, I have only met they're well, not in the film, but I only met two, which quite obviously were psychopaths. I don't know, is this, is this a direction you wanted this podcast to
0: take? I mean, it's, it's <laughs> said interesting. <laughs> no, no. But, I don't but know. most of
1: the time it, it was. And the reason why they came also to to this, you know, they wanted to take part in this restorative dialectic therapy was that, you know, they also wanted to be able to like go forward in their own lives. So it was, you know, it was very much, I think it was a different experience and to, again, going back to that first meeting, I wanted also to look into their eyes and know that that they did mean it because otherwise it would be impossible to to make the film with them if I felt that they didn't mean it. And and certainly I and still to this day I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that the perpetrators in the film do really feel remorse.
0: I think we should probably move away from this subject if it's getting too <laughs> too grim. <laughs> but well, yeah. Or, but it's yeah, it's so interesting. It, the film is truly, it's so good. And it's just so uh, crazy to see. Like, Because, of course, you have the humanity of the victims and you you feel for them when you start watching it. You're like, of course, I'm going to be on the, the victim's side, even though there are no sides. But then you start to watch the film and then you see the sort of humanity of these, these people who committed the crime. And you're like, okay, some are very re- remorseful. And you start to see these uh, different shades of gray of these people. And you're like, okay, I have more understanding of what, And then, yeah, you become even more like, oh, the world is truly not black and white and there's no good and evil. And it definitely touched me a lot, this film. I thought it was very, very, very good.
1: I'm glad you actually mentioned that word humanity because I think, you know, going back to your earlier question about what unites all the different films that I've made, I think that I am fascinated by finding that humanity, uh, the thing that unites us all, during these 30 years i think my experience has been that often the things that we think are the most private part of us you know things to do with your yeah, identity sexuality trauma these these things actually those are the most universal those are the most you know those are things that unite us all because they're like these central questions in life that we all grapple with and and i think it's a it's a really reassuring and positive thing that that we all go, our experience of life is yes there's huge variations of course but like the central things that matter to us we all share those and and very often then i have made films with you know, main characters that have, you know, there's this people think of them in a certain way. So like I first film, I think, made by door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman and I made, about politicians, prostitutes, policemen. A lot of them start with a P. <laughs> but, but, you know, so that there is that, that people have like a certain view of them, preconceived view of You know, these people are this or these people are that. And then when you can find those moments of humanity where you can see, ah, okay, well, yeah, life is, it's not so black and white. The gray area is, it's fascinating.
0: And it's, I think, many, many things people think like, oh, I'm alone with all this anxiety and all this, these thoughts. And I'm such a freak for thinking like this or doing like that. When in, in truth is we're all quite the same Uh, Or these things unite us as well, and uh, surely with more people being able to discuss various subjects through film and through uh, different mediums and social media and, and all these sort of things, I think people might feel less alone, but then again feel more alone with... So then, other aspects with technology, yeah, who knows? Social media, <laughs> yeah, yes. which is a no, whole nother monster. But but yeah, it's. Yeah. I think it's very. This is very true that we we are connected with these emotions that are usually not spoken about, uh, and then we think yeah. we're alone with them. In fact, we are not. It's. Uh, I would like to discuss a bit your newest film, which I haven't unfortunately seen, but. I know people who have and also think it's very, very good. And it's a a portrait, or not a portrait, but a documentary about Jörn Donnar, who is a Finnish, how would we describe him? He's a politician, or he was a politician. He was an author. He was this uh, persona in Finnish uh, culture and society. And he was uh, maybe, I remember him the best as uh, this person who always spoke his mind (laughs) and and was very, very straight to the point. And yeah, and you made... um, Made a film about him. So how how did you, yeah, how did you get this project, and what was it like meeting Jörn Donner just before he actually passed away?
1: Well, yes, I was. This film, I was I was asked to uh, direct uh, by some of his Yern's closest friends, who who were filmmakers, to Hong Kasala and Aritholapan, uh, who because Jörn was dying and he knew it, and and they felt and everybody felt that one should do one more interview with him. And uh, then Pirio Honkasalo came up with this brilliant idea that, um, because as you say, uh, Jörn is very outspoken, was very outspoken, very controversial. You know, he had this these mannerisms and these very like gruff and yeah. And so, so you know, so he would absolutely speak his mind. Um, and Pirio came up with this great idea that, that we would use the same questions, or like as a basis, the same questions that Jörn had himself used when interviewing Ingmar Bariman. And the format was pretty much the same. So we, we filmed Jern over four days, two, two hours each day, and then uh, very much with starting point, the same questions with the idea that, well, at least Jörn couldn't say that there were stupid questions because they were his own. <laughs> So so that was the starting but of course of course then we spoke about other things as well and of course yes you know he started everything off by by saying that this is his epilogue and that he knew he knew that he was dying at the end and that the end was not coming and yeah so so that of course put a whole color on everything but it was again reassuring in the sense that you know, he, even though he was, he was 86 at the time, you know, and he physically very weak, but still, you know, the spirit was there, his eyes were bright, the spirit was there and like it took a lot out of him the two hours, but he still like every day did it like absolutely professionally. So, so we talked about his life and he has a, again, controversial or difficult relationship to some of his children, which, which people, I think recently have, have like, know most about him. Uh, so we talked about that too, but we talked about, again, this, again, where does this need to make, to express yourself to have, to make art in some form, in a sense, I suppose we try, like, try to go back, well, what's the trauma that, like, mm-hmm. what's the reason why he started writing or making films? So very much the same things that we've been talking about here. So that, and so it was a unique interview but we, we didn't have any visual material that would be as unique. And thankfully, then, a stroke of luck, I was interviewing somebody about urine, and he remembered that the bottom of a the cupboard, there was like plastic bags full of undeveloped film rolls and negatives lying all over the place. That urine, photographs that urine himself had taken over the last 40, 50 years. Sorry, 70 years, what am I saying? 70 years. And by we found them, and there was this this incredible treasure of pictures by Yirn because that nobody had seen, because there's so many pictures of Yirn, so many he was so much out in you know in the public that there's so many pictures of Yirn and so much moving image and you've seen it a million times. This was his epilogue, though. This was his last interview. So what we wanted visually, instead of having images of him. It was images by him so he would see the world as he saw it the moments that he wanted to capture in the film the moments that he thought were important to him and that's the visual basis of the film
0: that's very very interesting uh yeah i can't wait to see it actually it's uh um, he's such an interesting character and so like well known as well. When I used to live in Sweden, it was the first. Well, not not the younger generation, but there was the first thing many people said it was like, "Oh, you don't that like, oh, that's," and yeah. and how amazing he was in the seventies and this very radical figure and uh, yeah, always outspoken. So it's very an interesting person, definitely. And now I was thinking, how we're gonna wrap this discussion. Uh, or this podcast episode up. So I'm just asking you, uh, what are your future projects? What is that interests you now? Is there any new documentary we can look forward to? And, and when will we see it?
1: Well, right now, for, that, I mean, for the last three years, I've been working on a film called The Happy Worker, or How Bullshit Took Over the Workplace. That's the working okay. title of it. It's about <laughs> office work. It's about office work and why it makes so many people miserable. It makes, I mean, and this is not even an overstatement, it makes millions and millions of people. There's something fundamentally wrong with the way we organize white-collar work that makes that's inefficient. I mean, only about 15% of this globally, 15% of people actually do their best at work. About you not know, 60, 65 percent don't really care either way. And then around 25% people are what's called actively disengaged. So they, they are so unhappy and they hate their workplace so much that they actually work against the employer. So we have a situation globally where 85% of people working aren't actually giving their best. And it's not because they don't want to. Most people do want their work to mean something and to do a proper job. It's it's very again, we're going back to this humanity, it's, it's what's in us all. We do want to spend our days doing something that we think is in some way meaningful. And the way work is organized and, off- and and culture at work means that it's not possible. I mean again, these statistics, these are from Gallup, these statistics, but you know, over half again, worldwide, over half of people don't know what's expected of them at work. So they go into work every day, and they're not quite clear on what they should be doing. That's burnout easy. is a very much is a focus on the film, and in that that too, that that of course it leads. them, this unhappiness can lead to extremes, such as such as burnout. So we're looking at like what's wrong with it, what do, what does it do with people, and uh, how we can make the workplace better, healthier, more efficient for both, I mean, a better place for both the people doing the work, but also from the employers too, because it's crazy. You can't, I mean, imagine the amount of money is wasted and people actually not being able to do their best.
0: That's crazy. Like that's so many and they don't know what, that's mind blowing. Like how's that? It's mind blowing.
1: It's, (laughs) and just the the figures, the statistics are like, it's really, you know, it's very, um, just the amount of unhappiness,
0: That's just and crazy. yet,
1: part of the problem is is that the working culture is that people very much feel that they can't express how they really feel, and so they go about and they think they don't express it because again they fear that at the next like layoffs, they'll be if they do express they'll be the first to go. That's one thing. So that people don't communicate. The management trends and management strategies are very much geared to process to the industrial world. Very few people work in manufacturing anything. I would say those ideas of management for the industrial world no longer apply. And like somebody in our, in our interview says, you know, we're very good at engineering. We're very good at, at process engineering. We're even good at like realizing the limits of the human body. So we engineer good chairs, good tables, good lighting what we need to do is to look at the human mind in the workplace. What is it that stimulates us, motivates us, inspires us, and design the workplace for that? And you can look at it too from a, like a evolutionary perspective. We are the same people that from ten thousand years ago, like maybe a hundred thousand years, we've always worked together as groups. Those same, same dynamics of the group, it still applies. It's applies to the office too. The things that motivates us, the things that make us work good, well, and we're just ignoring that. I mean, I can go on forever. I mean, we've had, you know, also the science of what motivates people at work. It's, you know, it's, it's very good. It's thorough. It's been there for over a hundred years a very good research into this, and yet it's being ignored.
0: This seems so crazy, because I'm thinking like, oh, it's maybe it's the culture of uh, these, uh, like I'm thinking like a huge company, like a multinational or something, and there's like this, uh, there's structures, there's like a system, and they, like, to to change that would be difficult, but then with being so inefficient, and they're clearly losing money in the efficiency and the motivation of people, it would be motivated and also valid to change that, yet they don't. Like, that's that seems crazy. Yeah,
1: there's there's very many things at play. I mean, you know, you have companies go through restructuring all the time, organizational changes all the time. 60% of those organizational changes show no benefit at all. The point is not, it's and it's often, its point is not to actually change anything. The point is to show to, say, market analysts and, and the outside world to give an impression that you're actually doing something that momentarily maybe changes the the, the stock price to a more favorable
0: so everyone's term. basically companies and people, everybody's like the emperor's new clothes sort of system, like very much. Of, yeah.
1: Very much. And this is it's it's very hard for people because people working in that situation know that. And and I think this many people experience or feel that they're living a lie. Well, there are many things that contribute to that, but that, that's really harmful too. I think, again, also, you know, looking at things, one of the big problems is management and our culture of how you become a manager. Usually, you become a manager as a promotion. It's a reward. So you have somebody who's extremely good at what they do. They're efficient. They're like, they're motivated. They're happy. It's probably that, you know, they're good at what they do because they are all those things. And because they are good, you promote them by becoming a manager of others without looking at, are they any good at managing others? So you've got a situation where you've got somebody who was really happy in what they did. They're suddenly being promoted to, they're no longer doing what they loved and they're doing something that they feel they absolutely can't do. And if they can't motivate the others, then all the other people underworking under them the work becomes inefficient and unmotivated and people become unhappy. So we do need to like think of the solution as one solution is to have different career paths. So if you've got somebody who's really good at what they do, maybe you give them more money, maybe you can make a title, maybe you good at other things. But if they're not good at managing people, don't make them a manager. Yeah. Yes. And, and then there's a different career path, which can be, becoming a manager path and, and that they like both paths bring the same amount of, you know, say money and, and status and the things that are like are important. But it goes back to, to this idea that we aren't looking at people as people and individuals with individual strengths and needs in the workplace. We're just seeing them as human resources. And, you know, that can be swapped out, like change, that like it's an asset,
0: yeah, and not a person. It's
1: just an asset and everywhere else. So there's a big change that we need to do. So that's what I've been working on. That's why I talk about it for the long time. <laughs> but I think it it resonates with with so many people and so many people know about some these bullshit stories from work of like how things can be so messed up.
0: It's like there is a, to wrap this up and to bring this back to the, UK somehow, there's this great television show called Black Books, which I don't know if you've seen. And yeah. there's an episode there where one of the main characters get a jo- gets a job at an office and she just walks in and she doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know what the job is. And she's hel- having these meetings. And it's just, it so resonates truly with this. It was, yeah, like, no, no clue what she's doing, but still goes there and gets paid. <laughs> and everybody's yeah. clapping because it's so great.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think and, and yeah, it's okay. It's a satire, but I think it is. It's a reality. It's, it's also because it's satire, because it's reality.
0: And it's both funny and, and very sad. <laughs> it's like, a, yeah, the yeah. a situation.
1: And particularly, I think, but that maybe it's a whole conversation, but particularly for millennials.
0: Oh, yeah. Millennials
1: yeah. are suffering most from this, and maybe Gen Z as well. You know, that, that uh, it's not what they want from work.
0: No. But hopefully there can be some change. And yeah. Yeah, I'm at sure least a discussion. You. Yeah, certainly. exactly. Yeah, and that's definitely what your film will, I'm sure will awaken is like oh, a discussion, so. hopefully. And also Corona hopefully has awakened some discussion in how we work and, and things. Yeah, like well, that. we can
1: say with COVID, you know, with COVID we've seen that like in a very short, we have this forced work experiment, right? And mm-hmm. so like we do know that like, in a very short space of time we can make massive changes to the way we work. So, why couldn't we now, if we are going back to the office, why don't we? Like, yeah. We can still make massive continue. changes, yeah. make it better.
0: yeah. Thank you very much, John, for this. Great, uh, Rebecca. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much and giving you your time and your the this very interesting discussion. We are very much appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Super. Thank you.
0: And thank you for anyone who's listening. And I hope you will uh, continue listening to our next episode, which will be with my colleague, Eero Yuria Koskinen. Thank you and bye.